please turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. We'll be studying chapter 1, verse, verses 27 through 30. In your Bible, uh, if you grab a Bible under your seat, that's page, it's page number 677. Philippians 1, 27 through 30. Um, I want to thank you for praying for Pastor Bert and I as we were away half of last week for a conference. Um, it was really encouraging for us and encouraging to hear from you as we were there. Um, I also want to plug one thing before we read that I forgot to mention in the bulletin. Next Sunday, we are um, updating the directory. Um, this, this passage talks about being united in the gospel as a body. And, and so one of the ways to, get, to, to be united is to get to know one another. And, the, and we, we found the directory very helpful. And so we, um, Tori Meske will be taking photos um, of, of you and your family. Um, and so that'll be right after the service um, next, next Sunday. So you're all welcome. Even like, if, and this is a great time if you're not in the directory, to, we'll have information there for you to, to sign up and we'll get you added in. So that's a great opportunity. Philippians 1, 27 through 30. The word of God says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And Father, we ask right now, I ask, please give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. Um, only by your spirit can we um, grasp and love the Lordship of Christ over all of our lives and all of our situations. And so, please uh, make, make this clear and, and may your word shine forth. Please help me. Amen. I'd like you to consider three images as um, we study this text. They're, they're all biblical images. They describe, they're all used in the Bible to describe a Christian's relationship with Jesus. The first image is of marriage. We'll, we'll talk about that in a little while. Marriage is a, mun- a union between a man and a woman coming together for the sake of a lifelong union. And then another one is of an army, soldiers enlisted um, for the sake of fighting under a general. That's another picture. And the last image is of a city, a group of people uniting in one place under one ruler. So three images, marriage, an army, and a city. And all these images are working together to communicate one reality to help us understand Paul's message to the church at Philippi. One of them is actually used in this passage. 
the passage contains, this passage contains Paul's first direct command. So in the Bible, there's indicatives, there's things that are true, and then there's commands, imperatives. And this is the first imperative command. It contains that in, in the whole letter. We haven't had one up to this point. It's, and so Paul is telling us, telling them to do something, to live in a certain way. And it's in verse 27 right there. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let the way you live be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or the verb could be translated, in your, if you have the ESV, there's a little note. It could be translated, live or behave as worthy citizens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to live in a manner worthy of the gospel? How are you and I going to live lives that are worthy of the gospel? What does that even mean? What does it, what does it mean to live that way? So the gospel is a message about Christ. He came, he died for our sins, he rose from the dead, and he is reigning. He defeated sin and death in raising from the grave, and he's right now reigning at the Father's right hand. We're going to study that next week, one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible. But how can I, so I, how can I live a life worthy of that, worthy of that gospel message? That's what Paul's calling them to do. And the answer to the question um, in, in verse 27 is explained by the rest of the passage, verses all of 27 through 30. So the solution to our question, what does it mean to live worthy of the gospel of Jesus, is going to be found by looking in verses 27 through 30. We need to hear this because the manner, or the answer, as, as to what this means to live in a manner or behave in a manner as worthy citizens of the gospel, or life worthy of the gospel. It's a description of what Christians look like. This isn't a simple, carefree, optional command to live not worthy of the gospel, as a person who claims Jesus would be to live a life inconsistent with the very reality of what I say is saving me. That's a dangerous way to live. So this message has a, could have a sting. It could have a sting. It can convict, should convict. However, may it not lead anyone to give in to fear or to reject Christ and say, that's not for me. Rather, my prayer is that we would see and value Jesus and in response, reject joyfully reject any kind of living that is not worthy of the gospel. I don't want to live in a way that's unworthy of the gospel. And, and I pray that that is our resolve. So let's begin. And we're actually going to focus on, one of, on Paul's final statements. We're going to start there in verse 29. Paul's final, one of his final statements. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. I think this statement Paul's making right there in verse 29, it's a lens that Paul wants you to put on in order to, to view the entire passage. If we, if we can grasp verse 29, I think we will understand the whole passage. So look at verse 29. This, this verse makes a bold claim, and it's, it's foreign to how we commonly think and even commonly in Christianity, we think about our relationship with Jesus. Paul says in verse 29 that if you are trusting in Jesus by faith, if you're trusting in Jesus by faith, 
both your salvation and your suffering are for the sake of Christ. Both your salvation and your suffering are for the sake of Christ. What you get from God, from Jesus, salvation, and what you get for following Jesus, they're both for the sake of Christ. That's an uncommon way to think about salvation specifically and in connection with suffering. It's an uncommon way for us to think about that. Let me show you why that is. Notice, notice that Paul says your salvation is for the sake of Christ. And I'm going to say right now that the ESV gets this, I think, best of, of, of other translations. Some of the less literal translations cut out some of the words in verse 29 to try and create the point, but they miss. I think the ESV hits it right on. Paul says, your salvation is for the sake of Christ. This salvation has been granted, or that verb granted is the same word where we get grace. It's been graciously given to you by God to believe in Jesus for his sake. For his sake, it says. Now, a common response to salvation is that we tend to view salvation and the benefits that come to me, the, the, the benefits of salvation, we, we primarily and ultimately think of them as for us, for my sake, not for Christ's sake. What I mean is that you know, we think of salvation, we think, we, the gospel message for us is like a ticket. It's a plane fare that I'm boarding, I'm getting on it, and it's taking me to heaven. That's not untrue. There's, that's not an untrue statement. There is truth in that statement. The result of your salvation is heaven. That's, that's true. However, it's, mis, it's a misguided view to view your salvation as ultimately, primarily for you, for your sake. If my salvation is primarily a ticket then I don't fully understand why I'm saved. And, and we won't understand what Paul is trying to communicate in this passage. We need to, 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 to dwell here for a little bit. So, so here Paul doesn't describe salvation as getting a ticket or a boarding plane for heaven. That's, that's not what he's, he's getting at. Because in verse 29 he says, it has been granted that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him. Why has he saved you? Why are you a believer? Is it for your sake? No, Paul says, you have been granted to believe in Jesus for his sake. It's for him. We would expect Paul to say it the other way around. We'd expect to say, God has granted salvation for your sake. This is your benefit. The salvation that you get, it's, it's for you. For your trip to heaven. But Paul doesn't say that. He says something much greater is happening. Something much more all-encompassing is happening in your salvation. Now, if there's some some frustration here some questions just hold on with me for a moment and, and, and let's look at what this means for our lives what it means because this has everything to do with what it means to live worthy of the gospel it has everything to do with what it means to be worthy of the gospel to live worthy of the gospel and this is practical this isn't just theory in our heads the way we talk about our relationship to God this, is te- this has teeth that you can, you can bite you can consume and, and be nourished by it you can take steps with this this is practical I'm not just pie in the sky theory here. This is, this is practical living way to think about your relationship with God. Paul is stating in verse 29 that both your salvation and your suffering are ultimately primarily for Christ, for the sake of Christ and not just for you. 
Now, why might it be unhelpful to, let's, let's, let's push back a little bit, why might it be unhelpful to, to view salvation ultimately, primarily, as a one-way ticket to heaven? Why, is, why, is that, why might that be unhelpful? There's two ways, I think, it could be unhelpful. The first is a theory I have. Paul's not making this argument here. It's a theory I have, and I think it's based, you can see some of the fruit of it. But the second is directly connected to how we're, we're going to understand what Paul's saying in this passage. So let's, let's just look at the theory. First, I think that if you view salvation ultimately, primarily, as for your sake, the benefits of salvation are, all, are ultimately for me. If, if over time, what is going to happen is you're going to struggle to see the glorious purpose that God has for you in suffering. I think you'll struggle. If we had it our way, we'd rewrite the passage and we would say, it's been granted by God for my sake to be saved and believe in Jesus and to suffer for his sake. I think over time, you'd struggle to see the purpose God has for you over all your life, especially your suffering. So how might this play out? I think what could happen is you might cherish and personalize the benefits of salvation. Yes, I got this. This is, this is for me. He's saving, he's, he's saving me. I got my ticket. And of course, I also understand the ticket master Gave me the ticket, so he's very important in my life, so if I'm going to suffer for him, yes, I'll do that. But only for a while. I think over time, you may actually begin to think, because salvation is for me and suffering is for him, over time you may begin to think that suffering is competing against the salvation you have in Christ. You might not see them as one, both for Christ Suffering may begin to seem inconsistent with the salvation you received from Jesus. You may stop believing what Paul says in verse 28. Salvation is what happens when you suffer. It's evidence of salvation. You might stop believing that. Suffering begins to feel out of place, something to be feared, and eventually suffering might be seen as the real enemy. Suffering becomes the enemy of your life. And the moment that suffering for Jesus becomes my enemy, I stop suffering for Jesus. When suffering becomes the ultimate enemy, you stop suffering for Jesus. The moment I reject that suffering for Christ is consistent with my salvation, you will stop suffering for Jesus. Because suffering is my enemy now. I don't want to suffer. I won't suffer for Christ because I don't want to suffer. That's now my enemy. Now, I don't, I don't know if I can provide or prove that this will happen to you if you create a disconnect between your suffering and your salvation. Um, I think this is what happened to Demas in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 10 who loved this present world and forsook Paul. Life got hard the missionary Demas who was following after Christ, life got hard and he forsook Paul because he loved the present world more than he loved Jesus. I can't say that for sure. That's a theory. However, regardless of that, beyond the danger that of, of 
struggling to see the purpose God has for your suffering, I can confidently say that if you view salvation as something that primarily benefits you and not something that is for Christ primarily, this passage doesn't make sense. This passage gets illogical really quick. If one of them is for me and the other one is for Christ, the true meaning of the text is lost. If my salvation is ultimately, primarily, simply a ticket to paradise, not ultimately for the sake of Christ. We will misunderstand the priority. Paul wants us to see the priority that Jesus and his gospel have over everything. Your salvation and your suffering. So to understand this, let's bring in one of those images. So let's think about marriage here. So in this passage, Paul describes the Christian relationship to Jesus much more like a marriage union than like a transaction, something that you get from the ticket master. In the gospel, your relationship with Christ is, is symbolic of marriage. So when a man and a woman, let's think about marriage, when a man and a woman unite in marriage, they make promises for, before God, become loyal. So they're going to be loyal to one another. And, and, and the vows, right? For better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death. Marriage is fundamentally founded on a shared promise, a union of shared promises. It's a commitment to be, to remain faithful to one another as one. Something new comes out of those two coming together. They're one. Something new comes out. This means that marriage is founded on something vastly more important, vastly more important than individual desires of the man and the woman. The marriage vows can only be upheld if the couple unite together for something greater to make their union central. So for example, if a man commits to a woman ultimately, primarily, so keep this language going, ultimately, primarily, because he wants something from his wife. That's why I'm getting into marriage. I just want something from her. He's not going to value that marriage union if after a while he doesn't start getting what he wants. When she fails him, the marriage may crumble. Or, on the other hand, if the woman, if she commits to a man because she ultimately, primarily wants something from him, something that he's going to give to me, that commitment loses value if over time she does not, she does not start getting her expectations met. So if, both in the, so if both the man and the woman come into this marriage, focusing ultimately, primarily on what they personally will get out of the marriage, they're going to be disappointed quickly. And lots of young couples really early on find that out and must confess, I did. <laughs> One of the most common reasons for divorce today is lack of commitment. A recent study, 75%, more, even more than infidelity, 75% of respondents cited lack of commitment as a reason for their divorce. But that's not how God intended marriage to be, right? It's a union of two people based on a commitment to one another for something greater. There's something greater. I'm not just looking at what, it's got, what, what, what's, what I get out of this. 
Something greater is coming out of this. The couple cannot commit to one another for selfish reasons. The commitment is to a shared union that partakes in the good and the hard times. Sickness and health. Poverty and riches. Now I say all that because marriage is a biblical picture of our relationship to Jesus. In marriage, all that you are is united with your spouse. In marriage, you, you benefit, any benefit that you get, it's a shared benefit for the sake of the union. So also, in the gospel, you are not ultimately, primarily saved for personal benefit. You are ultimately, primarily saved for him, for the glory of Christ. You are the, we read it this morning in Revelation 21, we are the, if you're in Christ, you're the bride adorned for Christ. That's who we are. All the goods, all the benefits that come from your connection with Jesus are ultimately, primarily to display the goodness and wonder and glory of Jesus. Something greater. Jesus is for you. In the gospel, he's for you, for his glory, because he is glorious. And in the gospel, you are for him, for his glory, because he is glorious. You are saved for his sake, you will suffer for his sake. All you are, all for him. He is not ultimately that ticket master, he is Lord. The gospel of Jesus as I've said a few times throughout this study, the loving work of Jesus, it calls out for allegiance to him. It calls us to allegiance. You're in my salvation if you're trusting in Christ. It's a lot less like saying, I'll have that. And it's a lot more like saying, I'll have him. I want him. He is great. And I want him. I will follow him wherever he leads because I know there's good things in store with him. He is the bridegroom wedding you for his glory and under him you share the glory. He is the general who enlisted you to serve in his army and under him you share in the victory. He is the ruler of that city called the gospel, which you're a citizen of. And in his city, as you live as a worthy citizen, you see that your life, all you are, even your salvation, is to make him known and make him and and loved by others for the glory of his name. And so Paul says that it is for Jesus' sake for the sake of your ruler, your Lord, that you have been granted by God to believe in Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. It is for his sake. Just as your suffering, so we think about suffering for his sake, just as your suffering as a result of being a follower of Jesus is for Jesus, so also your salvation is ultimately for Jesus. This is what Paul means when he calls us to live worthy lives or to behave as citizens of the gospel all you are all you are all your 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 salvation your suffering it's under him and ultimately for him both the good 
and the bad for Christ, guaranteed in the end to be good. Whoever confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. So he is your bridegroom in sickness and in health, in suffering and in victory. And this bridegroom has guaranteed you good things. He is your general in victory and defeat. And this general always guarantees that you're going to have victory if you're under him. And he is the ruler of your city. In feast and in famine, the hard parts of living, just as certain as the pleasant aspects of living in the gospel city, all of them, they're light, they're momentary afflictions in comparison to the eternal glory he promises. All you are is for Christ in the gospel. Your salvation and your suffering are for the gospel, or for Christ. And under the rule of Christ, all roads, all roads, the painful roads, the, ple- the pleasant roads, they lead to good things. This is why suffering, like the suffering that the Philippians were going through, we don't know what exactly what it was, but they were suffering for following Jesus. It's actually evidence, what he talks about in verse 28, it's actually evidence of being a Christian. So if you say, yes, yes, I'll submit to the, to the rule of Jesus, what you're saying is, his cross, it doesn't look like a failure to me. Whereas so much, so, you know, everybody else says it's a failure. It's, it's not a failure to me. That rugged cross, it looks really good. It looks, it looks wonderful. So you don't see a loser on the cross. Rather, on the cross is your Savior. He, he took my sin. He took your sin. He took your shame. And he paid for it all. Then, your response... If you see that, then your response is to say, I will bear the shame and reproach of that cross. He's everything. I'll bear the shame and reproach of that cross. Where he leads me, I will follow. His cross, his death, that's where I find salvation. That's where I find hope. In his, you know, if, his, if his suffering means salvation for me and for anyone who believes, then what good What good? If his suffering means my salvation, what good may God produce from my suffering for him? What good can God produce? Paul says that if you're living for Christ, even in suffering, that suffering is evidence of your salvation. It's it's evidence of the salvation that's in store for you in Christ. If, If Jesus won, if Jesus was victorious through suffering, what is that gonna mean for me in my suffering? I'm going to win. We're going to win as well. So under the rule of Christ, not only is our suffering our salvation, but under the rule of Christ, suffering someone inflicts on me, as it talks about there, for following Jesus, it's actually blows against my Lord. It's not against me. I'm under the rule of Jesus. That's why Paul says in verse 28 that that the suffering your opponents inflict is evidence of their destruction. If you're living under the rule of Jesus, then they are opposing Jesus if you're you're suffering for Christ. No one should want to oppose this Lord, Jesus, right? Because he always wins. He always wins. Opponents of Jesus always give self-incriminating evidence. They're, They're, you know, afflicting you 
They're giving evidence against themselves before God one day that if they do not repent, it's going to be used against them. It's not going to be good. And if all roads lead to good things under the rule of Christ, then why be afraid? Why fear? Why base your hope on a hero like Paul? Well, I'm not going to be afraid as long as Paul gets out of jail. No, 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 no. All you are, all for him, even the good and the bad, guaranteeing good things. I'm not going to base my hope on, the, you know, the, on how good my hero does. What can an opponent do to you? What can, a, what can an opponent really do if you are under the rule of Jesus? If you suffer, you're saved. If you suffer, you're saved. The worst thing that can happen to you as a worthy citizen of the gospel, the worst thing, it's actually evidence of your salvation. That's not bad in the end. So why fear? We should be like the psalmist. The psalmist who, you know, we need to write this verse on our foreheads and read it every morning. In God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? I will not be afraid to stand and live under, under the gospel of Jesus. What can man do to me? What can a boss do to me? What can a classmate do to me? What can a coach do to me? What can a neighbor do to me? What can a terrorist do to me? What can an enemy? What can a parent? They can't do anything. Really. They can do something. That's not, they, they can do something. If you suffer at the hands of man for, 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 for saying over your life, Jesus is Lord, if you suffer at the hands of man for following Jesus, it will provide evidence that you're saved. That's what this passage says. It does do something, something good for you. In a marriage, sickness, let's bring us back, this, this image of marriage, right? Sickness, poverty, hardship, miscommunication, they don't have a right to claim on the destruction of the marriage. Those circumstances. Those are difficult seasons, but they do not have a right to undermine the reality of your marriage union. So also, the sufferings that that may come from being a citizen in that city that is called the gospel, the sufferings that you can come from being a citizen, all the plumbing problems and the power outages and the enemies outside the gates, they make no claim against your residency as a citizen of the gospel. They don't have a claim on that. Those sufferings dwelling in that city are evidence, I'm a citizen in there. I'm, I'm part, so don't be afraid. And if there is someone who can transform you to live without fear, to see your suffering as salvation, and all that you are, all for him under his rule and reign? If that is true, then how important is it for Christians to unite under the banner of Christ and his gospel? If all I am is all for him, what should we be all about? Jesus and his message of salvation, which kills fear under his rule and reign, Jesus and his message of his saving rule ought to be the one thing at least, the one thing that we unite under. We may not have a lot of things in common, but let's not go after those things to unite. Let's unite under one thing. We're not going to unite under Paul. He might not get out of jail. 
Let's unite under the gospel. We are citizens of the gospel. So we ought to live together in the gospel, linking arms, striving side by side, one spirit, one mind. And what's that mind focused on? The gospel of Jesus Christ, his rule and reign over all of our lives. We strive to make the faith of the gospel known. Or it could be said, we strive to declare the faith which is the gospel. The gospel which we believe in by faith. I'm not working for this gospel. It's, it is given to me by faith. We unite and believe, to believe and proclaim the message that Jesus died for sinners and will save anyone who surrenders to him. We unite as citizens of the gospel and we call people to come and dwell in the gospel city. This is a good place to live. This is a really good place to live. That vision transforms how our church must view any ministry. What does it say? How are we pointing to the gospel in what we do? So let's conclude. What does it mean to live a life that is worthy of the gospel? That was the question. And the answer Paul gives is that a life worthy of the gospel is a life that surrenders to the lordship of Jesus in all things. Have it all. The reality That is the reality that shapes all of the real priorities in life. All the real priorities for us. It's it's, it's, it's who we unite under as a church. It's who we live for. It's how we view all of life. It's how we're called to view all of life. A life worthy of the gospel is a life spent following Jesus, with his people, going where he goes, in his power, for his glory. You are joined to Jesus like a bride to a groom. You are enlisted to Jesus like a general who guarantees your victory. You're a citizen of the gospel city. Jesus is the ruler. And he gets all the glory and praise. So let's live like that. Let's live worthy of the gospel. All we are, all I am, all for him. Let's pray and then we'll partake of the Lord's Supper. How wonderful is this truth that you would bring us into your city and make us your citizens. You would lead us, save us from death, give us true purpose in life. And God, I ask that you will help us to surrender to see all that all we are is to be all for you and to forsake all else for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.